Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans Podcast, and I'm here with Wendy Christie, our fabulous Chief People Officer. Wendy, how are you doing? Hello, Tamara. Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing that kind of I can't remember what day it is. I think so. And apparently we're in March. So I'm not quite are, sure when, when this is going to come out. But right now we're in March. Yes. Um, leading up to the first race of the, the Grand Prix season. So I'm very excited. There you go. There you go. Well, we are joined today by Asad Duna. And Asad is the founder and CEO of The Unmistakables and also a friend. And we are so happy to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Asad. Hello. Hi, Wendy. Hey, Tamara. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad that you're here. And do you know what? Do you want to explain to everyone the Unmistakables and what you do in your, in your own voice? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Unmistakables is a strategic EDI consultancy, so equity, diversity and inclusion. Uh, and we work with organisations to implement what's called inside-out inclusion. Um, and that's how do you embed EDI through every single part of the operating system within a business or a charity or um, uh, a government sector in some areas. Um, and we really look at what are those markers? So things from on the inside, leadership and culture and learning and development or colleague data. Uh, and then on the outside, how you look at marketing, branding, communications. And the through line for us is all around insight. So everything we do is informed and backed by insight. And we do that through a lens that we've developed called lived expertise. So how do you bring both your lived experience, but your professional expertise into something. So I run a team of about 20 or so people and it's just a great honour to do the work that we do with large corporates that are trying to change established organisations to smaller organisations just thinking how can they be better. Fantastic, thank you. And how did you come to create The Unmistakables in the first place and can you sort of give me a a bit of a flavour of your, your early career and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So I started the business in 2018 and that started from uh, a world in large agencies where I was at for quite a while. And I had a lot of uh, people client side saying to me, how do we reach and understand X audience? And so I would take those briefs into the places I was working and actually there weren't very many answers and people would say, well, how do we understand? Back then people were saying BAME and BAME a lot more, but black Asian uh, minority ethnic audiences, or how do we understand LGBT audiences? Because I was also volunteering as the director of comms for Pride in London. Mm -hmm. So people were asking me, well, how do brands end up at Pride and what happens? And I had that going on. And then I also had my own personal journey of becoming a leader and sitting around leadership tables thinking not many people look like me or have the same experiences like me and what's going on there. So I think it was a combination of spotting an opportunity, but also feeling like perhaps I'd reached where I could get to in the structures that I was in and uh, maybe I could set something up. So that's where it came from. I suppose it tracks back to how I've 
always seen and, and been in my career. I've always felt a little bit like an outsider mm. and that's kind of played through a, a lot of different times. But one of the things you asked me about my early career, I, I actually worked with uh, some of my first ever boss kind of as I left university. Um, he was the person I was speaking to who said, I was telling him about this idea and he said, well, you know, I'll back you and support you. And I think there was just a really nice kind of synchronicity about that and it's taught me a lot about how I've been in my career and all the connections that you've made but that that's where the idea came from it was there's there's clearly an opportunity I guess like there's the professional expertise that I had then there was my lived experience and those two combined and collided together to form a business. And would you say that at the beginning did you fall into marketing and advertising agencies or, or was it a bit of a calling from from earlier on? I, so I did a I did a degree in German and business studies, and for for an Indian British Indian like me, doing German was always a bit peculiar, both for people in Germany thinking why do you speak German, and then also for people in Indian communities saying well we become doctors and lawyers and dentists, all those stereotypes that you hear. So I did German and business because business was like the palatable bit <laughs> that I could do. Um, and as I did that, I did uh, some modules around marketing and eco- economics for business. And I, I got quite an interest in it. It felt quite creative. Um, so that was happening. And I think actually I, I was really intrigued and uh, longed a bit to be a journalist. And so around the time that I was graduating, the there was a recession in place. It was a difficult time to get into journalism but I did get a work placement at the Financial Times Deutschland and this was like 20 2008-9 and got an appetite for the world of media and how that worked and as I was coming out of university I was applying to grad schemes and things and I ended up applying for a grad scheme at a a premium car brand that I probably won't mention and um, I think I came like a close second and I I realised at that point I probably couldn't leave London like there was just something telling me that maybe I should be in a big metropolitan city after being on a campus and then I ended up thinking well how do you work in marketing or in communications but in London and that's where I started to find agencies and understand what they were about so I I don't know I wouldn't say I fell into it I think I actually just followed a bit of what I was interested in and I've always been quite lucky that I've had and being afforded the opportunities to do that. And just picking up on what you said about being a bit of an, an outsider, do you think that's one of the things that really sort of drove you to, to start The Unmistakables? I think so. I think it was um, it was always this sense of seeing things slightly differently and I'm wondering what to do about that. And I, I know that comes from being Indian in, respect, in some respects. Um, and I think sometimes being gay as well. But one of the things that really struck me was in the agency I was working in I did one of those like let's go on holiday but work from there at the same time Uh, this is way back before the pandemic so it was a bit avant-garde to do that you pioneer uh, (laughs) I was a pioneer and uh, and I worked from the Mumbai office and as I went in I thought oh my god I feel really at home here and then I thought oh god is this how people feel at work like they just feel like everyone gets the norms and the food and the things that you talk about And that struck me. But then I also felt like, well, I'm not quite at home here because I don't have the same. I don't live in India. Um, So I think just that kind of living on the bridge and the diaspora has always given me this like, well, what's quite going on and why do I see it the way I see it? Um, And then probably the layer of German. and, And then also when I go into gay and queer communities, often being one of few people of color, just I've always got a bit of a feeling a bit different. 
And is that something that you experienced as a child as well? Um, we always like to consider how childhood experiences and what you were like as a child shapes where you kind of end up in your career. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I I was thinking about that and I was thinking, okay, I'm the youngest of four children, but I'm the youngest by nine years. So right. I like I'm fascinated by things like birth order and how that plays out for you. Uh, namely because I've got quite a few friends at the minute who are having children or having their second children a second child and, and talking about how different it is and all the energy that goes into number one versus number two I mean by the time you get to number four and then nine years later you can probably imagine the level of energy that was in my house um, <laughs> to, to raise me so I was I was a bit of an outsider in the in the in the I guess the sibling structure and I could probably talk to you for hours about like systemic family orders and I'm just fascinated by it, but um, a bit of an outsider in that. And then I think I also was uh, raised a bit by one of my sisters who kind of helped me and and carved a bit of a a path of of what to be thinking about and what to be doing. So I think I had that. I really did feel a bit like an outsider in the sibling pack. And and even now, like they're, they're approaching their late 40s, early, early 50s. So there is a, a generational difference of how they see mm-hmm. the world and, you know, access to capital and what is woke and not woke. You know, these are interesting things that play out in, in my family. And did you have, was there anyone that you particularly looked up to when you were younger, whether it's somebody you knew or someone in the public eye? I, I think my sister in, in many respects, and I think also the bonding link was there, was also my dad, because um, my dad really believed in education and he moved to the UK in the mid 70s in many ways for a better life but also because he knew the access and opportunities here weren't where India was there like the irony now is India is is growing and thriving but I really looked up to that and I think I absorbed that of like how education is a bit of a path through so certainly in my family dynamic I had that I think if I think about in in public life a couple of people who really stood out were people like Sanjeev Bhaskar and Mira Sayal, who were in Goodness Gracious Me. And I think mostly because they were the first people who looked a bit like me and were doing something that wasn't what people who looked like me do. Yeah. And then they mm-hmm. were also parodying it. And and that had quite an influence, I think, on just thinking, well, what are the horizons and where do I see my culture in yeah, on broadcast television. Those are the ones that I really remember. Wonderful. And how about, um, you, you know, in the years since then, you mentioned that old boss that had backed mm. you when you were talking about setting up the unmistakables. Have there been other people who've given you that support or who've influenced you in your career? There was, there've been a couple of people. I, I was thinking about some of the, the managing directors that worked for. So there was, um, someone called Richard Canarak, who used to be the MD for Fleischmann Hillard when I worked there. And he, I remember sitting in his office and he said, look, one day I said, you're going to go off and create something. I can just see that in you. And I think at the time I was like, oh, I want to be an account director. Um, and he, he kind of had that foresight and he said something to me that's always stuck, which is throughout your career, look and think to how can you take small bits from people to become you? What are the best things that you can grab? 
Uh, and then there was also a director called Gioconda Beekman, uh, or G, which she went by. And I remember we went, I remember so clearly, we went to like, I think Polpo, when in there was that really lovely Polpo in Covent Garden. It's probably still there. That, like, Ooh, we yeah. sat on the stalls. Do you, do you know the one? Yeah, sorry. I get distracted by food, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we were having like this really lovely like calamari or something and she just looked at me and said, thing is, Asad, sometimes people spend their whole life climbing a ladder only to realise it was leaning against the wrong wall. Oh, that's very good. And that just really hit me and stuck with me because it was someone saying that really, like when you're young and early in your career, you can really think about what ladder you want and then where you're going to lean it, and how big is it, and what you want to do. So um, G really stuck with me. Holly Ward also stuck with me, because I think I was very lucky at a junior mid-level, around account management level, where I was I was actually winning business, and so I was in pitches a lot. And I loved it, because I got really exposed to different ways of thinking, but I spent a lot of time then with very senior people, and... I learned that very senior people do business in a different way. Like a lot of it is you just sit in a coffee shop and prepare for the next meeting or you, you kind of having more live conversations than live prep. And then I think if I think now to running a business, um, a lot of my clients in, inspire me in many ways. So I, I work with someone called Evelyn Espinal who, who works at Unilever and, and I'm so inspired by like her, her level of thinking and, and the work we can do and the passion behind Edie and I um, and then I think about my own managing director Simone who is such a great partner in this business because she's really thinking around the corner and also managing everything that we're trying to do in such a sublime way and it's I think surrounding yourself with really good people all the way through has been has been important and I, I know living in this train station and on the bridge it says if you want to go fast go alone and if you want to go far go together mm-hmm. and Every time I see that, I'm like, oh, it's a good reminder, isn't it? That y- mm-hmm. you need to go together with people and have a bit of a collective. I love that. And I love how those moments that maybe at the time in the, in those conversations, these uh, moments have had a real big impact on you. And I think it'll be nice, hopefully, that some of those people will listen and, and hear them hear that being recognised. And it might be a, a wow moment for them as well to realise the impact that those, those conversations had. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. And Asad, you were talking about how you sort of picked up sort of tidbits from some of your clients and and uh, people along the way. So, what kind of culture have you built at the, the the Unmistakables, and 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 how do you sort of maintain that? The first couple of years in any business or in our business was you're just trying to get off the ground um, and you're just trying to get going, and then around uh, late 2019, I would say, we started to look at what are our values and how do we set some, instill some, and use those as a guiding force through what we do. So that was really important. And we went through quite a collaborative exercise at that time to say, well, what is it? And the company was smaller, so we could do that. Mm-hmm. So we um, we set on five values that we wanted to, to live by. And, and that I always remember from when I worked for Richard Parkinson at Incredible because they had a set of values that were quite clear. And I remember one of them so clearly it was cheeky. And like, actually, how how can you be cheeky and how does that turn out? But anyway, so we we set our five values and they're on our website. We use them for interviews. We use them for performance reviews. We keep coming back to them. But something that Simone has taught me is that values aren't just something that are written on the wall. They're something you have to keep coming back to behaviorally and think about, are they working? What is the context of that? How do we expect behaviors 
um, to play out from that. And then also, um, often the values are the worst behaviour that you tolerate is often where the culture gets yeah. set. So then how do you balance that? So we, we tried really hard and I think we don't get everything perfect because we're humans. Um, but what we do try and do is think about how do we instill what we are advising our clients internally so that a lot of the time we're learning how do things work and what do they mean for people and and then we can use that to take to our clients and say well this is what we're seeing and this is what's going around around the future and I think I I'm also quite honest with people and this is something I learned from Charlie Osmond who I worked for uh, he ran a company called Triptease um, and he just used to be really honest in interviews mm. and say, it's really hard to work in a scaling business. It can really trip you up in terms of what you think work is. It can be really hard. And so I've tried to instill some of that when I talk to people, because not only is working in a startup scaling business hard, there's lots you have to deal with emotionally with that, but also the subject matter of what we're dealing with is also quite hard because we're talking about trauma. We're talking about structural racism mm. in the day to day. So then we've looked at how do we build spaces to do that? So something that we do that I love is a thing called tea time talks. And um, we create a space to digest a new story and almost debate it between the team and make sure that we're pulling ourselves out of our bubble. So mm. yesterday we had our team time talk on Roald Dahl and we were talking about should publishers have the ability to change and censor. And I think that's a real cultural element for the business to say we, we make time for this, we explore it, we discuss it and we've been we be informed. Um, so I guess to, to kind of conclude and answer, it's around the values and setting them but then living them and then intentionally creating some space around it. And I think creating that space where you can have some quite in-depth, intense conversations and, and people know that they can openly bring their, their viewpoint, I think is, is a real testament to you. And I think that values piece, I'm, I'm so, well, Wendy and I are kind of completely aligned on this. I think getting those, the values really clearly described by the team and then lived by every day is is uh, critical for for companies i think and one of one of the moments i'm really proud of i think we were at a like an event or an awards thing or something and someone said to me you can always spot the social element people in the room and and it wasn't a bad thing it was a good thing and it was to do with you know that we're sort of just kind and and quite sort of not driven by ego and and there was just a, a sort of a social element vibe and i think that's that's really yeah. Nice. That was really important that's to me. So nice. Yeah, I re- and I remember um, a lot of people asked me about you know why the unmistakables, why is it called that, and it really came from the sense of a collective and a collective of people, but also looking into the word of like what is um, being unmistakable about, and it's about being memorable and thinking about what's the impact that you leave. So some of the best feedback I get is when I hear clients say gosh you can really see the work that you put into it or gosh you really made me think differently and then when you hear that from different pockets you go okay there's something consistent so amazing to hear it at an awards um, ceremony for sure. And so what's exciting you in the industry at the moment? Well there's a lot going on and I guess it's which industry do you want to talk about because 
within this, I guess EDI has become something of an industry. Yeah. And then we can talk really more specifically about marketing comms if we want. So we, um, and depending on when this comes out, we are about to launch or have launched uh, our next report. So a, a couple of years ago, we launched something called Diversity and Confusion. And we looked at how do people look and feel about EDI. And we've just taken that to the next level. And some of the data and findings that we've got in there are is is brilliant. There's some really insightful points about where are we going? What is the state that we're living in? So tomorrow, just thinking about what you were saying about how to create things. What we're hearing a lot at the minute is, well, we're we're communicating. We're all communicating because we've got all these channels to communicate. But actually, are we having a conversation? Mm. That's a different thing. So some of the data points that we're seeing is how is there some division that's being brought up within workplaces? How are ERGs, so employee resource groups, mm-hmm. working? What's the media narrative around EDI? So depending on when this goes out, it it will be there. And and I really encourage people to to check out the report that will be on our website. So that's really intriguing me. And then the bridge, I think, into content marketing is some of the stuff I've seen this week around how we might be moving towards over-representation. Oh, yeah, in the Telegraph, I saw that. Yeah, you probably caught this. And and this is something, I mean, one of the, there was a finding within the report about where are we comfortable to talk about EDI matters. And I think there is a sense of what people feel and what people think, and then what is the reality so what the data was um, that came out, there were two, there's two stories that came out. There's the Telegraph one, which picks up on the IPA, uh, the IPA data around representation within Adland. And it's saying that, you know, it's more represented by women and more ethnic minorities. Therefore, it's actually above the census, which is one way of looking at it. The other way to look at it is where are these organizations based and therefore that. But what that's what I'm seeing quite a lot of in the world of DNI. It's kind of bigger comparisons as opposed to inclusion measurement and how people are feeling. Mm. So I found that interesting. And then there was, this blows my mind, that there was a company that create gastric balloons and they have put out a cross-country PR study. They did a YouGov survey, as you do, to look at do people think and feel that certain groups of people are over or underrepresented on TV? And it found that people feel and think that LGBT people and ethnic minorities are overrepresented on TV. Uh, and then their comparison and link to gastric brands were was that obese people are underrepresented. Now, I can see how someone writing a PR story thought, this is great. But what's happened is that the media has picked it up and made it only about ethnic minorities and LGBT people being overrepresented. And so you start to go, actually, there's a sentiment that's starting to pick up here mm-hmm. of how people are feeling and what people are seeing. Uh, and we, 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 we work with people who create TV shows and adverts. And the people creating the TV shows are telling us, well, the adverts seem to be almost forcing it. Whereas in a TV show, we're working with so much more of the public. So what is more real? And I think these are conversations that people are having at home and thinking about and talking about, but not necessarily feeling confident to, to voice and this is this is I wouldn't say it's exciting me but I would say it's keeping me really mentally challenged about how do you prove the impact of ED&I mm-hmm. whilst avoiding the woke culture wars 
but also mm. using insight and data to validate what's really happening because how people feel and think is one thing what's actually being shown on television isn't measured and so you can't then say well there's a, a perception gap or an authenticity gap or whatever you have to go well why do people feel the way they feel and that I, I I've got loads of theories about why that is um and where that's coming from but that's been the thing this week that's beyond Roald Dahl I've really been chewing over of what does that mean yeah and and very hard not to get frustrated with articles like the the, the Telegraph who are I don't know it almost feels like yeah, all of this diversity nonsense. Can you just all get back in your box again? It's it's just very very mm. frustrating. But uh, but I agree that the more access to data, so that the difference between perception and reality, so that we can actually um, change the conversation around that. Because um, but you know I I admire you that you stay calm because <laughs> I think I would just get so angry with all these articles. <laughs> I'm reading a really good book at the minute called The Chimp Paradox. Oh, yes. Brilliant book. Brilliant book. Amazing book about, um, you know, where, when does the chimp come in and what's the human doing and what's the, the computer doing? And I think for me in this area of, of ED&I, it is so emotive because we're talking about us as people. And I guess I wasn't, I wasn't quite fully aware that that was how it would feel because you know in marketing and comms to some degree you can leave leave it a bit at the door and say right that was a campaign that we did and didn't quite work but um or did work whereas now you're like okay this is really about who people are and how they're seen so in even in the preparation for our next report some of the data and this is what we often see in companies is often the data just backs the hunches of the people who haven't been heard for the longest time Mm. Right. So what we often see is LGBT people feel disenfranchised or unincluded. Like, and they'll know that because it's talked about in the networks or certain people will say it. But other people might not take that seriously until they've seen a critical mass of data or a chart that says this is how it is. Which is why I think insight is so important because it's not necessarily about the insight. It's about the stakeholder management of the change through that and that's why I try to remain calm because I've always I always remember this uh, watch advert in Geneva airport my, my, one of my sisters lives in Geneva and I used to go quite a bit and it was the only way to break the rules is to know them inside out mm-hmm. and that always stuck with me to go you just got to know all the rules and then you can say yeah, okay I'm just gonna change them all now once you can and so do you have a a life mission then Oh, I just thought I'd um, casually just drop a really big yeah, question in there. <laughs> What's the meaning of life? Um, uh, so at the Unmistakables, we talk about uh, accelerating inclusion. And I would say my life mission isn't too far away from that in creating cohesion. And I've, I've always sort of done that in ways that maybe I haven't written down. Like I remember after... The Orlando shootings in, I think, I can't remember, 2018 or nine, or maybe 17. It was um, someone called Omar Mateen opened fire in a gay club in Orlando mm. and I think killed something like 49 people. And I remember coming, like reading that news and saying, I've, I've just got to do something about it. And then I created something called the Big Gay Iftar, which was bringing together Muslims and the LGBT community and LGBT Muslims to open fast together during Ramadan. Mm-hmm. And like it got loads of pickup and people started talking about it and I did it for three years. And I think that was like, okay, that was in some ways accelerating inclusion 
through bringing marginalised groups together. And then, then the other thing that's really important to me is that people who don't have access to opportunities, which could be you know, rising to senior levels or starting their own businesses or creating a cultural movement, whatever, like how can I help to enable that? Um, and what can I do based on where I'm at today or where, where I get to in the future? That's always kind of with me of like, how can I leave that and and I guess without well I'll go there a little bit but I think it's some in some ways about legacy and how does legacy what does legacy mean for me is something that I've been thinking about a fair amount because I think when you start a business you really start to feel that like you're creating something that all of a sudden tomorrow you'll know like Definitely. creates you're like oh how all of a sudden we're here and when did that happen yeah I think uh, that's where I'm at on, on mission yeah we were joking about because um the social element uh, turns 21 on the uh, 5th of March. Oh, and we were joking oh, about wow. it. I can drink in America. That's exactly that's where we went. <laughs> <laughs> we need to celebrate by drinking in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Off to New York. Is that why you're going to New York? <laughs> Actually, I'm, we're, we're going out to uh, be part of the Made by Dyslexia uh, program. Uh, uh, Lynn Frost, our MD, is an ambassador. And so we're, we're going to be part of their um assembly out there which i'm so proud of it's a big launch in in new york so yeah that's it's gonna be amazing. a good good reason to be out in new york amazing so this is what i love about this podcast we can go from what's your life mission to more of the sort of like what's in your fridge type type questions so i will let wendy kickstart with the uh, the more sort of personal quick fire questions cool yeah so let's narrow that field a little bit from life mission to perfect weekend What's your idea of a perfect weekend? Oh, my perfect weekend is to get in the car with my partner and the dog and just get out to see the sea and hopefully for it to be warm, which is hard uh, in the UK, but <laughs> just to get out and have that sort of, I almost feel like when I see the sea, like everything almost gets washed away with it and you come back and you're like, okay, back into back into it. So that would be my perfect thing because I, I absolutely love driving and I've sort of had to accept that of myself which is can be a bit embarrassing given you know petrol heads and all of that and where the world's going with the climate but I just that I find that time really mm. satisfying uh, so that would be perfect I mean even more perfect would be a couple of friends would come down as well and you know make a bit of a, a weekend of it yeah that does sound lovely and there is something about driving and there's something about sometimes it's easier to have tricky conversations I've certainly yeah. found as a mum, you know, with my with my sons, sometimes those conversations are a bit easier to have if you don't have to look at each other. Yeah. And also there's it's a rare time where at least one person cannot look at a screen or cannot look at their phone. True. Like mm-hmm. I know you like in our car you can like talk and send text messages and all of that, but it's not you can't get the same kind of distraction. Mm. So it's yeah, you hold someone captive, I suppose. Yes, <laughs> that's maybe slightly, something slightly more sinister altogether. way. <laughs> A little sinister. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> so, do you do you like to watch TV? And if so, if so, what's your current favourite TV show? Do I like to? I mean, I don't not like watching TV. I think growing up, we always had like do your homework and you should be working, which fueled all sorts of unhealthy behaviours that I've unlearned as I've gotten older. So I still get pangs of guilt when I sit and watch TV for a prolonged period of time. But what I've recognised now is actually just reframe that as rest. So 
that's I, I wouldn't say I dislike it or like it. I've just got a bit of a an attachment that is uh, that I'm working through. And current watch at the minute is um, we're quite we're actually watching quite a lot of Bollywood films in um, my my home because we just got we went to India over December, and I have found I need to keep uh, dipping back into my culture, my like my heritage and culture. Uh, so there's a very good Netflix series called um, The Romantics, which is about Bollywood film and the Bollywood film industry. And it's centered around uh, the uh, Yash Chopra family. Like he was a director and his son became a director and they created the highest grossing films. And I didn't actually know until we watched the final episode that people in India really don't like the term Bollywood because right. it is a comparator to Hollywood. So they talk about Indian film. So it was really nice to learn about my own culture through that. So different question now. How would you fare in a zombie apocalypse? Yeah, probably not very well. <laughs> First of all, I'd be asking myself, how did I end up here? Uh, and then I'd get very reflective of like, what life choices did I make that meant I'm now in the zombie apocalypse? And uh, what what happened there? And, 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 you know, if I survive that initial what is going on, I'd probably then start thinking about, <laughs> like, what trade can I do or what can I create that might fend off these zombies um, and just think about putting my skills to good use. I, one of the things I know is that I, I'm i quite yeah. calm in a crisis. And so a few people have told me this. And, and so I'd probably just go, OK, well, we're here now. Like, what am I going to do? And I'd have to just manage the energy of people who are really having a time of it so as long as you didn't get eaten in the first sort of 10 minutes you'd be all right i think i'd just try to reason with them too much and then realize that's probably not the way to do it okay so what's your favorite food experience or or restaurant um so i i I just mentioned um that we went to india and there was uh, so a a tali in Mm. in indian culture is when you get kind of a, a big for those who don't know you get like a big plate with lots of little dishes on it and you kind of get to try a bit of everything and they're really common and I remember having talis growing up and we went to this restaurant in Mumbai called Maharaja Borg which our hotel recommended and they're like it's very good they all everyone dresses up quite like colonially um and like in the old Raj style which I was like okay let's put that aside that could be a bit problematic but fine and you sit down and you sit down to a table that has the tali on it, but all the food, all the dishes are empty. And then they just work, the, the, there's like four or five different people who work their way around the restaurant with different different curries and keep topping you up as you go. And so it, I guess like, now I'm saying it, it sounds a bit like a buffet. <laughs> it sounds awesome. Possible, but they, they just, oh, it was just, it was so good. They just kept topping you up. In India, like you have this, well, I remember growing up when you do, you can't you have to leave your plate clean, but it's almost if you leave your plate clean, you haven't eaten enough, and so they're taking offence to it. So they keep topping you up, and you just end up in this sort of like culture loop of who's gonna uh, <laughs> relent. Um, but the food was just so good, and it just kept on going. And we were probably out in like an hour and fifteen because they clearly just want to like move the table on. Um, but that that has really stuck out as a as a food experience, <laughs> as a food experience, um, because of the service and yeah, Indian food or just food is brilliant. <laughs> Yum. How would your friends describe you? I think 
I used, well, I'd probably still get it. A lot of friends would say he's really ambitious. Um, and that came up quite a lot. I think uh, restless has come up quite a lot. And I th- a lot of people say like, like deep. So I, I struggle with like surface level conversations and I struggle with repeated surface level conversations. So with my friends, I'm always going into well, what's really going on. And then they come away and go, oh, I didn't expect to go so deep. And I think as I've gotten older, people are actually really up for that. Where I remember yeah. in my early 20s, people were like, can you stop doing that? Um, but now <laughs> people are more up for it. I said, I know that we've talked about my desire to have a karaoke yacht at Cannes. And, and I always feel like if I, if I say it enough, it will happen one day. But uh, are you a karaoke fan? Do you have a go-to song? I wouldn't. I, so I'm, I'm really not a karaoke fan. Um, I really like when everyone's like, let's go to karaoke. I'm like, I'm going home now. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've struggled, but if, if I had to, if I had to pick a song, <laughs> um, I, I think I would actually only do it because I would force a colleague <laughs> to come and do it, which is, uh, 21 seconds to go okay. by the So Solid crew, because a colleague of mine, Selena just knows all the words. And at, when we did our first ever company away day a couple of years ago, um, we did do karaoke and I was like, I did not know that about Selena. Uh, so I'd probably put that on just so that she'd have to come to the karaoke. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's, it's all about championing other people as well. <laughs> oh, exactly. Lifting up others. <laughs> well, we've come to the end and thank you so, so much for coming on, on the podcast. We've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Is there anything that we didn't cover or would the, are there any like closing thoughts that you'd like to share? No, I mean, I would love to ask the question back about the zombie apocalypse. Um, so that's definitely on my mind. Like, how would we fare as a three? But no, I think I mean, well, we covered a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that could work. Probably between the three of us, we've got the resources to... I reckon. Yeah. We could take Start them. a new community. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, no, I think, I mean, for anyone listening, just if you're interested in, in EDI and what we're up to, have a look at the unmistakables.com and... As I mentioned, we've got the report and yeah, if you're someone listening to this, just thinking, oh, how did he do that? Or I'd like to do something like that one day or I want to know what that's about, then I'm, I'm always up for a chat. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.